But it's my, it's my privilege to be with you today and to um, just open up God's word and have it speak continually into the message that series that we've been doing. Uh, off, the, off the beginning right here, I just want to um, see if there's anyone like me. How many people love it when like average Joe gets a break? Like you look out and like, I just love this thing that happens in life when you just look at somebody and you're like, dude, how did you get that gr- girl? We'll just go there. Well, how did you get that girl? Like, good for you, man. Or like, how did you land that job? Or how do you drive that car? Or like, all these things have, and like, you just look out and you're like, man, I love it when ordinary people get breaks. I think this is why I like uh, that show, The Voice, or The American Idol, so much. It's because uh, constantly you see ordinary people who walk onto the stage and they get breaks all the time. I love it. I love it. It's a show where like, um, Steve from Accounting who volunteers at the soup kitchen on Saturdays, walks onto the stage in front of Simon Cowell, who's staring him down in the face, going, what do you have? And he's wearing his cowboy boots, and he stands up there, and all of a sudden, he's like a punk rocker. And you're like, that dude is awesome. Or, or the girl who, you know, there's always a backstory to these things. The girl who, who almost tragically lost her life, but still alive and fought through it, and she's a fighter, but now she's under this mound of debt because of medical bills, and a million dollars would change her life. And she walks in and she stands up to that microphone, kind of trembling a little bit. And she's like the second coming of Whitney Houston. (laughs) I just love these shows. I love watching regular people just kill it. And there's this moment in these shows. If you've ever watched, you guys have watched these shows, right? You've seen these shows. There's a moment where producers make their money. Where like the person will stop singing, they're holding the long note out, and then everything stops. And in slow motion, there's like a quick cut to the waiting room where mom is like outside frantically like pacing up and down. And Seacrest is like, it's going to be okay. Or Carson Daly, whoever the guy is nowadays. And, uh, and, and then it cuts back to inside, and the person's just standing there looking at the judges and just waiting the verdict, just waiting, wondering the question, do I have enough? And everyone at home who is tone deaf is like, was that good? I don't know if that was good. And... Uh, like, like the heavens open, right? And, and this do- like doves descend down into the room and Simon Cowell smiles. And the person goes, oh, I can't believe it. It was good. He likes it. I'm good. I love it. I love it. Every time I watch it, it's such an emotional thing. Every time I watch it, I, every time my wife watches it, she cries. Not me. Not me. Yeah. It's a, it's a wonderful thing to watch people get a break. And I think, I think the reason I love the storyline, these moments that transport us out of this world and make us believe that we can measure up to the highest standards. The reason I think we love this storyline is because for the most part, we all are asking this one question that the depths of our souls, we all ask it. It's the question this, am I enough? Like, am I enough? We ask, we ask this question, do I have enough? Have I done enough? How good is good enough? Uh, and, and ultimately, we ask this question, am I good enough? These questions are common sentiments, the common motivating questions in our lives that drive us to do what we do and be who we are. And at the core of this question, am I enough? Am I good enough? Is this common sentiment, and maybe you've never realized it before, but, but it's this common sentiment, it's the common quest that we are all on, It's the quest for justification. How do I justify? How do I find ultimate approval for my life? This is particularly relevant to all of us, whether you're a Christian or not. All of us have this mildly nagging 
thought in the back of our minds at the end of our lives when it's all said and done and I stand before the most severe of judges, will he smile on me and welcome me or will I miss the mark? Am I good enough? How can I be good enough? During our Sola series, we've been looking at the foundational truths of the Reformation and the turf that the Reformation was fought upon is the ground of justification. The question the Reformers asked was very simple. Before God, the supreme judge, how are we right with him? How are we justified? And the result of the Reformation was a clarifying of the doctrine of justification, which is the thread by which all the solas, all five solas that we've been preaching through and will continue to preach through as foundational truths here. It's the thread that weaves them all together. John, John Piper wrote this, recently put it online. I thought it was just helpful for us as a church to frame what all of this is held together by. It's held together by justification. He says this, justification before God is by grace alone with no merited favor whatever. On the basis of Christ alone with no other sacrifice of righteousness as, as, as a foundation. It's through the means of faith alone, not including any human works whatsoever to the end that all things lead ultimately to the glory of God alone as taught with final and decisive authority in the scriptures alone. And I love our our senior pastor. He's been like, like a clinic in historical theology around here the past couple of weeks. He's capably walked us through uh, these truths and the historical situation surrounding the Reformation to the point where I have actually very little ground to till here except to maybe remind us that during the Middle Ages, the church's teaching was very much about justification, about being right. And the church's teaching was also very much that salvation was a grace of God. What was confused, what was muddled was this question. How is it possible for grace to effectively be applied to our lives? If grace is available, how do we touch this grace? How do we possess this grace? How do we make sure on the day of judgment, the last day, that we are good in God's grace? The medieval church tried to answer this question in the form of justification and a type of justification that basically said this. You are made right by before God based upon your works of faith in which the church will direct you. They taught that God will approve you in the measure by which you prove that you are worthy to be approved. And the church even went so far as to say that how well you practice works of faith would determine your rewards in heaven. It's like when I take my kids to Menards, which happens like twice a week. My kids love Menards. You'd think most kids would be like, trip to the hardware store. My kids are like, daddy, are you going to Menards? Can we come with you? And my little daughter, she's four, and four years ago, to get her to love Menards, I promised her this thing. I said, listen, baby girl, you can come with me whenever you want, and it'll be the best day of your life. But if you are bad, we will get no candy. I said to her, but if you can just skate by, if you can just get in and out and not cause a scene, I'll get you M&M's because that's like the baseline candy. That's like the most like of candies, like, right? Like we can do better than M&M's, certainly. Y'all are M&M lovers, apparently. <laughs> Sorry, I just offended you all. My kids, with my kids, it's like this. I say, if you're bad, no M&M's. If you're, if you're good enough, 
than M&Ms. But listen, listen, if you can be exceptionally good, like if you can be nice to the person at the checkup line and try to not steal anything, and if you can like, <laughs> like try and just not let the people working at the store see you doing backflips off of the cart, just then, if you're that good, we will get that six-pound bag of Albany's gummies. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> and my kids are like, Daddy, we'll be great. We'll be great. And this was justification back 500 years ago in the church. This idea that however you decided to live your life was going to be the measure by which you received the merits of grace and favor with God. You were only as good as your recent efforts. And so the church set up systems that grace would be dispensed. If you had a baby, you had them baptized very quickly so that the grace of God might touch their lives. If you sinned, you would confess it ad nauseum. In all sorts of ways, you would work really, 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 really hard to make sure your faith was right with God. You wanted to do everything that the church prescribed for you to do. Why? Because you were earning your merit. But what happens when you're standing before God is based upon your current performance? An unsteadying sense of guilt creeps into our lives. And if it's up to you to resolve the tension of your own guilt by works, by doing the works that caused the guilt in the first place, how do you get out of the vicious cycle of self-justification? How do you know if you're good? The only way to be good is to keep going back for more. Because if your guilt remains, your possibility of judgment remains. I'm not so naive to think that this situation, as archaic as it sounds and as different to us as it sounds, doesn't still exist in our world today. We live in our privileged land, America. Whatever you think about our nation, you can't argue the fact that we are of the most privileged people on the planet. And in our world, in this first world that we live in, we have our own sense of what I want to call first world justification. This idea that, that we live in such a privileged place and, and all around us we see uh, tragedy and struggle and sorrow. We see people living on less than a dollar a day and it hurts us to have so much. And so many people try and justify their lives, try and make their lives better by um, changing the way they act. And please don't hear me wrongly, I am pro-humanitarian as they come. But when we think it saves us, we have a problem. So many of us try and prop ourselves up, deal with the guilt that we feel by making ourselves look better and making ourselves feel better. People lie on their resumes. Like, why do we lie on our resumes? People say, I attended this prestigious institution or, or I did this valorous thing or I, I, I've, I've got all of these accolades and, and hire me. And then we hear all the time that CEOs claim to have lied on their, well, what do they do? And they're trying to justify themselves in light of the board that is hiring them. Why else do people eat organic foods? Non-GMO, non-trans fat, non-flavor, non-MSG. Except for this desire we have to live life the right way. To justify ourselves by the current diet that we're on. To justify our, our, our weight. To justify our actions. To, 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 to do things that cause us to look crazy. I, I remember, I remember uh, watching a, an episode of this weird TV show. You probably, maybe you've watched it. It's, it's called Portlandia. 
And the first episode is fantastic. There's this couple sitting down at a restaurant. And it's not enough just to know that you're eating good food that was raised well, that's not chock full of, you know, antibiotics and all these harmful things. But today we want to know the name of the chicken before it was killed. <laughs> like, like we want to know what type of friends it had. Was it trapped in a cage its whole life? Was it injected with all these bad hormones? But most importantly, did it have access to free Wi-Fi in a gym? <laughs> I tried to start a garden two years ago, and I went to a local nursery. And the guy at the nursery looked at me, and he said, well, of course you're going to do organic gardening. And I said, yeah, of course. I mean, organic material is what the plants grow out of. Isn't that right? And I was wrong. And condescendingly, he looked at me and said, well, where's your, where's your worm farm going to be? I was like, my what? I just want peppers. <laughs> and he said, and what type of manure are you going to use? Are you going to use this or that? And I was like, manure? I don't know. I was just going to use some dirt. And he said, well, how are you going to take care of the weeds? We strongly recommend this. And I said, well, I was just going to go with some regular off-the-shelf poisonous pesticides. And to cap it all off, he said, get rid of your garbage can. You're composting now. And I thought, why all the fuss? Because we have a lifestyle to keep up. We've decided that the best way for us to live our lives on this planet is to do things a certain way. And I walked out of that garden place and I went to Home Depot and I bought everything off the shelf that was not organic. We are a people who have so much and the world has so little and it's caused guilt in our lives. I remember a couple of years ago, I'd go to Starbucks for coffee. I would drop $2 and something cents on a cup of coffee. And next to the stand was this little thing called ethos water. And you remember this, ethos water was like water with a mission. And um, the idea was you'd spend like twice the amount of money on this bottle of water and Starbucks would get five cents to building a well over, overseas. And you could feel good about spending money. We are a consumeristic society with our consumeristic guilt, so much so that yesterday I saw online, new websites are popping up that'll help you shop online with a conscience. You no longer have to feel guilty about the way you spend money. All of our products go to help causes overseas. And don't even get me started on social media. That bastion of all things, am I okay? How many pictures on Instagram describe the real us? No, we post only the good things so that we can raise our image. And on Facebook, which stats tell me that most of you wake up and before your feet hit the ground in the morning, you're on Facebook. On Facebook, we all have become modern Pharisees, pronouncing our woes to the world and making our lifestyle the only one. Pity on the soul who doesn't eat the right foods or buy shoes that give shoes to impoverished kids around the world. Pity on the soul who sends their kids to that type of school or this type of school or who doesn't purchase fair trade coffee. Woe to the one who feeds their kids sugary cereals or has more than two kids or less than eight kids. Woe to you who own a gun or do not own a gun. Worst of all, where my wife and I live right now is this haunting, nagging question of should we put our kid to bed crying? And if I go on Facebook, you will all come down on me with the force of Old Testament prophets (laughs) to say your opinion. 
Some say, of course you let a kid cry. That's what they do. They cry. And others would say, no, if you want your kid to be a sociopath, you'll let him cry. (laughs) And so here we are. This is our first world problem of justification, of trying to tell each other this is the right way to be right. This is the way. This is the lifestyle. If only you could choose the right lifestyle, you'd be okay. Drive this type of electronic car, this type of whatever EPA certified thing, and you'd be okay. We need the Reformation truth of justification by grace through faith alone today. Because on the grounds of our own merit, if we make ourselves right by our lifestyle or by our actions, self-justification always leaves us wondering, always leaves us hopeless, always leaves us without justification. This is what Martin Luther saw so clearly what gave motivation to the Reformation in the first place. See, when the, when, the, when the reformers recaptured the biblical gospel, they saw clearly and they were captivated by the idea, Romans 1.17, for instance, that the just shall live by not works or a lifestyle, but by faith. And following Paul's logic throughout the book of Galatians and Romans, the reformers, in their return to the gospel as revealed in Scripture alone, saw this truth about justification. That justification, us being right with God, is not on account of any merit in ourselves. That is God's grace. That is sola gratia. It is received then by faith alone. Faith alone. I want us to look at, for the next remaining moments today, on what God's word says about being saved by faith alone. Faith alone and grace alone are complements to each other. They go hand in hand. And you'll see this here in Galatians chapter 2, what Paul says. He says, yeah, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but say it with me, through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Paul says in Ephesians 2, For by grace you have been saved, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And I could add to this the first three chapters of Paul's letter in the Romans, where where he repeatedly says, the just shall live by faith. We are not justified by works of the law. I could add to it Romans 5.1, which we all have already spoken together today as our responsive reading, that says, since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And here's where a biblical understanding of justification must hit us today in our self-justifying world. If we know that our first world self-justification falls short of managing our guilt, and the works of the church in the 1500s and the works of the law in the first century fall short, we must ask ourselves the question, well, What is justification in the first place? What are we even shooting at? And here's how the reformers, in the midst of the Reformation, they got together, looked at Scripture, and tried to codify this. They tried to describe it and define it. This is the Westminster Shorter Catechism. It says, justification 
is an act of God's free grace, wherein he pardons all of our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight only for the righteousness of Christ, imputed to us and received by faith alone. See, at the heart of this Reformation truth is that salvation is received only by faith. And actually, that's really good news for us. We, we call that gospel news for us. Why? Because we are people who try desperately to justify ourselves. We are people who know not what to do with the guilt that we all feel in our lives. We're, we are people who, who have been trained up by our society to deflect responsibility for our actions. And God's biblical pardon in our life through justification allows us to have tremendous hope because it is not based upon what we've done, but, because, but upon something completely different altogether. And this is the truth that I want to talk about today, that justification, it's personal. It is a legal declaration that will never be repealed. So I'm going to take those in that order, the remaining, remaining moments of our time here today, and walk through what is justification. First, first is this. Justification, it's personal. It's personal. Just look at the person next to you and tell them, hey, it's, it's for you. This is at the Hobart Portage campus when everybody does what I say. So, <laughs> doesn't work like that here? Okay, it does for the next five seconds. Look at the person next to you and say, hey, this is for you. Yeah, it's for you. Justification, it's personal. It's personal. It is, it is, it is a, a human individual on an earthy, touch the person next to you type of way where we see it's not some abstract thought. It's not some abstract theory. It is a personal truth. At the core of justification is the acknowledgement that we have offended God with our sin. And because of this, God has the right to be angry at our rebellion. Hardly anybody argues the point that um, we've sinned against God. Uh, over the past couple, um, past couple days, I've noticed in the news there's accusations flying against the media mogul uh, Harvey Weinstein, and he's in the midst of a whole bunch of problems. And so he wrote a statement that he put on his website. I took the time to read it, and this is what he said. He said, I realized, this is kind of his confession, he said, I realized some time ago that I needed to be a better person. Though I'm trying to do better, I have a long way to go. And in our society, we hear words like that and we're like, man, what a good guy. Like he realizes, like, like I'm not great, everybody. I got my flaws, I got my issues, don't we all? And most of us are like, yeah, good for you, man. Like, right, right, yeah, that's, that's true. You'll get there. And his letter, which itself is a clinic in self-justification, it acknowledges his personal guilt. But ultimately, there's a deeper problem at play here. And all of us are caught in similar instances of guilt and sin. And Paul tells us that as human beings, we are guilty by our association with Adam. Through Adam, sin entered the world, and because of sin, all have died. So we are all caught today, not just Harvey, but you and me. We are personally responsible for the sins that we have committed. And the idea that we're sinful people who have rebelled against God and his wrath is stirred up against us, that's not a happy thought, and that's not a culturally okay thought. 
But it has a couple things going for it. Namely, it's a biblical thought. And it's a hopeful thought. Because if you know the one whom you've sinned against, you can then have a path forward to, to move and to grow. I'm reminded of um, Psalm 51. David prays, he says, against you, you alone, O God, have I sinned. And since we know that our sin is against God, we can acknowledge that we are all guilty sinners who deserve the wrath of God. This totally rubs against our notion of having a guilty conscience today, where guilt is a feeling that we have and not necessarily a declaration of who we are. We are crazy. Do you know this? We're crazy. We say things like, I lie, but I'm not a liar. I cheat, but I'm not a cheater. I sin, but I'm not a sinner. I have guilt, but I'm not guilty. And biblical justification does not let us off the hook so easily. Uh, Kevin DeYoung makes this point. He says um, that when guilt is just about what you feel and not who you are, forgiveness then becomes essentially learning to accept yourself, learning to live with yourself. There is no room for God in this thinking. You have not offended him. You've only offended yourself. And the only person you need to get right with is you. DeYoung goes on to say, this is the worst of all worlds, an abiding sense of guilt for which there is no resolution to the dissonance that we all feel, no atonement for the guilty state that we know we really inhabit. Put simply, there is no redemption. But the good news is that justification is personal. It means that God personally looks upon us and holds us personally responsible for our sin. He is a personal God who holds us personally responsible. He is personally offended, but he also offers us personal pardon. And that's great news because that's what we need. We need personal pardon. And that's why Jesus died for us, not just the race of people, but specifically he died for you and for me personally. Which leads me to the second point. Justification is not just personal, it's also, and I'm sorry, this is a weird word, but it's, it's forensic, forensic. You think about that word and you think CSI, like some sort of forensic science. In the Latin, forensic, it just simply means to be dealt with in open court. And so we use this today to have forensic uh, evidence brought to court to either condemn or acquit the person who's on trial. And justification is exactly that. It is set up in the courtroom. The setting is before a holy God, the judge, knowing that it was against him that our crime was committed. And so in justification, we have this picture that God is declaring legally binding with all force and weight of his will and his word, our state. And we realize, standing before this holy God, that we have offended the judge and the state. And when you have offended both the judge and the state, and they know it, you have no defense to offer for yourself. Before a holy God, all of us stand condemned. All of us stand in this position saying, I am not good enough. And this is the situation for God to operate out of his character of justice. To be the just judge that he is, he must punish sin. 
We are not saved by God's simple dismissal of sin. God does not just wake up and have a good God day. Say, oh, all those sins, I'm not going to take those seriously anymore. Now, for God to be God, he must do something of our sins. And for us to be not guilty, satisfaction is what we need, not dismissal. We need the legal proceedings to carry forward for us to be considered innocent. And that's exactly what the gospel is. That's the good news that Paul explains to us in Romans chapter 3. Check this out. Paul says this, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. It's the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forth as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. He, since he, hadn't, he hadn't just discounted them or forgotten about them, but he had passed over them. He had delayed judgment on them until the time of Christ. And this was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just in punishing sin and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So here's Paul's argument. If we try and show God our good works that we've done, our self-justifying actions, we obviously fall short and we will not be made right with God. We need something other than the law. We need something greater than the law. We need something other than our works, something outside of ourselves. We need something, the reformers called it, we need alien righteousness. We need external righteousness to be given to us. And this is what God did. He gave himself the way God solved this conundrum, this massive problem, this predicament for us was to himself fulfill the law in the person of Jesus. And not only did Jesus live the perfect life that you and I couldn't live and keep the law, but he died a death that Paul calls propitiation. That's a crazy word. I'm sure you haven't used propitiation in the last like decade in conversation. But here's what it means. It means it means to, to, to be the sacrifice that satisfied wrath. See, though Jesus was innocent, he took on the guilt of the world, making him subject to the wrath of God's judgment. And, and here's, how, here's how it works. Here's how it works. God, God in his, his judgment comes down on us with a different hammer. This is my um, two-pound maul. It's a drilling maul. This is about the most I can swing, so lay off me. <laughs> I've used this thing a lot in my house. I've, um, believe it or not, I've fixed a lot of things with this mall. Um, I have successfully uh, fixed a boat with this thing. I have uh, split wood with this thing. I took down my entire bathroom with this thing. And um, that's about the end of its usefulness. It is an incredible weapon of destruction. If Chip Gaines was here, he'd grab it and swing it around for demo day. You know what I mean? Like this is a dem demolishing tool. And before God, the hammer of justice, the wrath of God swings upon us. And um, this is not a mall. This is a cup. I have no idea what this is for. I don't know how much this is worth, but I know that to my wife it is priceless. 
because this was given to her by her grandma. Oh. Do you like it? It's from the 1920s. It's a little brittle. It's got some imperfections in it. It's chipped. But Kristen's grandma ceremoniously, a couple of Thanksgivings ago, gave this to her, bequeathed it. It was given to her from her mom and then given to her granddaughter, my wife. It holds tremendous sentimental value. My wife threatened to divorce me if I come home without it. <laughs> she didn't. I, I'm making that up. But it is incredibly valuable to us. I, that, is, that is certainly true. And um, for all of us, we, we see this picture so clearly that we are just like empty pieces of pottery, is what Paul says. And all of us in our imperfections, we stand in the way of God. I'm not going to, don't worry. That's a, that's a camera trick. You see that? It's a good camera trick. Put this over here. <laughs> don't worry, it won't fly. It's okay. But you get the picture that all of us stand in our lives with, with, with the justice of God and his wrath poised over us, ready to strike. And that's one of the reasons why so many people in the world cannot or don't want to accept Christianity. It sounds like an awful, ungodly religion. This angry God, how could he be so upset with the world? Why isn't he a God of grace? And when we don't realize the, the wickedness of our sin and the effects that it causes God to go to, we fail to understand that the biblical account is that we all stand here underneath the wrath of God. But here's the good news. Here's propitiation, is that while we all deserve this, God in giving us Christ covers our sins and when he deserves the wrath of God in our place, he accepts it on our behalf and he is crushed for our iniquities and he covers us in his grace. Now, I don't know what happened underneath there. You see it, right? This is propitiation. Is this a different cup? No. Same flaws, same chips, same family that it belongs to, same everything. But this cup right here is saved and spared the judgment of the hammer. And that is faith. When we come to God and recognize that there's nothing I can do on my own, I am in line, I'm in view, I'm, I'm in the path of your wrath and I deserve it. But because God is gracious, he provided a substitute, someone to take the wrath of our sins so that in justification, when we come to God in faith, faith being the idea that I understand I don't have what it takes, Grace being the idea that I understand God has what it takes. But in faith alone, by recognizing that I don't have what it takes, we stand before the holy God with his own gavel in his hand, ready to pronounce judgment on us, the second hammer of justification, I want to call it. And he looks at us, and if we have faith in this, and we can just simply point to Christ, his hammer falls again, and he says, I declare you not guilty, because I look upon you, and I see that you trust in, you are in Christ Jesus. So what do we do? 
you get out of the way of the hammer? Do you try and build yourself up with some more like uh, stronger shielding to help deflect the blows? No, no, friends, this is faith. Faith alone teaches us that you and I can do nothing. You grow churches today by giving practical steps for how to live the Christian walk. I have nothing for you today. Because this doctrine, which we cherish so much, is that you can't do it. It is the grace of God that allows us to be spared the wrath of God. And by placing ourselves under that sacrifice of Christ, by by simply acknowledging him and saying, you did it all. We are saved. Which is incredibly good news for us. The the, the doctrine of faith alone means simply this. You and I need to just stop striving. Stop trying so hard to save yourself. Stop trying so hard to be good enough for God's graces. You know what? He loves you enough to send his son to die for you. All he wants from you is a simple, wow, thank you. And when we have our faith in Christ, it changes everything changes everything. This is the last thing. Is that justification, it's final. It's final. God declares us innocent in his sight, personally. God legally declares us and considers our sins no longer accounted to us, but satisfied by Jesus. And we ask the question, well, can that change? And Paul would resoundingly say, no. For on the cross, Jesus died for the satisfaction of the wrath of God. But there's yet another act of God that is resounding in its declaration that sin has been paid for once and for all. And it's Christ's victorious resurrection from the dead. When Christ emerged from that tomb on that victorious Easter Sunday, the whole earth and heaven and hell shook with a mighty victory that forever Jesus was sovereign over all things. His resurrection declared that justice had been served, that the penalty was paid, and it has not to be paid again. This is what Paul says. We should applaud that. What Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, he says this. He says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Which means this. Nothing you think condemns yourself if you have faith in Christ and you recognize I can't do it, but he can and he did and I I believe and I trust in that. Nothing can condemn you. No scheme of the devil on the last day when he stands before God and acts as the accuser that he is and tries to tell God, hey, but I saw him do this thing and you have to make him pay. God will look upon us and say, you have faith in the right sacrifice. You have faith in my son. I see your sin no more. And forever, we are right with God. So what do you do? I fear that sometimes as churches, we've added steps to this. We, we've, at this point, I would, every eye bowed, every head bowed, eyes closed, however that works. And I would have you work your way into heaven by praying a prayer. 
And um, I don't think that's wrong. I, I don't have a dog in that fight. But I have a friend recently who started attending the Hobart Portage campus, joined my, my, my wife's small group. I love these guys. And he suffers from OCD, which honestly is really fun. His obsessive compulsive disorder, though, it, it shows itself generally in the form of ritualized, memorized, and self-formulated prayers. And he takes a sinner's prayer to a whole new level. I asked him to write down some of his thoughts for me to share with you because I've seen in his life, this is a godly man who's been saved by faith alone. But his journey getting there was one of self-justification through good works in the church. This is what he said. He said, I remember as a teen repeating a version of the sinner's prayer to myself over and over, believing that if I said it in the correct way with the correct cadence and the correct number of times, that I would appease God and ease the anxiety. I hated feeling like a sinner. So I confessed and confessed and confessed, hoping that I would feel clean, knowing that everything was out on the table, but peace never came. The realization of my sin was never-ending. I would confess a sin and think of another and another and another. If anyone could obtain justification through confession, it was me. And it was all so exhausting. I eventually realized how completely and utterly depraved I was. And I had probably not, uh, not confessed even one one-hundredth of a percent of all the sins I had actually committed. And there was no way of ever confessing all those sins. My heart had confused the equation. I started to believe a false gospel that I would be saved through faith and my confessions in order to obtain mercy. Instead, I realized I needed to trust instead in Jesus' perfect work on the cross. And when I did, it is finished, became the story to all of my sin, past, present, and future. And it's only by the grace of God that he gave me the faith to trust in him that I'm saved. I can't do it on my own. So friends, if you're here today and you've heard this message that you are not good enough, but Christ is, and you agree, we call that faith, that you are in Christ, shielded from the wrath of God which is poured out for your sins, that you might be saved forever. Justification by faith alone, not by our works. It allows us to stop striving and rest in the finished work of Jesus and know with confidence that Jesus personally saved us. He paid for our sins. He represented us in God's court and he has saved us forever by faith alone. Let's pray. Father, this is such a hard message for us. We are people who want to do. And yet, God, the gospel allows us to rest in what you've done. You look at us, God. And before your judgment seat, we don't have to do a song and dance to make you happy. All we have to do is point the finger to Jesus and say, because of him, I know you call me innocent. Because of what he did on the cross, my sins have been forgiven. They've been separated from me as far as the east is from the west. You've bore my sin so that I might have new life. So Father, we marvel at the fact that our salvation has nothing to do with what we've done. We carry to it only our sin and that's as far as we work. 
Father, by your grace alone, you have offered us forgiveness that we are here today saying we accept. It's in your precious and holy name.